Good morning. My name is Zach. If you are worshiping with us for the first time, we are closing out our sermon series today on the life of David titled Searching for a King. We've watched David's Cinderella story of going from a shepherd boy and rising to the throne of Israel. And today we actually come to David at the very end of his life and we see him do his very final act. And so we will do that in 1 Chronicles 29. Verses 1 through 20. And you can find it printed inside your worship guide. And if you would, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word. And David the king said to all the assembly, Solomon, my son, whom alone God has chosen, is young and inexperienced, and the work is great. For the palace will not be for man, but for the Lord God. So I have provided for the house of my God, so far as I was able, the gold for the things of gold, the silver for the things of silver, and the bronze for the things of bronze, the iron for the things of iron, and wood for the things of wood, besides great quantities of onyx and stones for setting, antimony, colored stones, all sorts of precious stones and marble. Moreover, in addition to all that I have provided for the holy house, I have a treasure of my own gold and silver. And because of my devotion to the house of my God, I give it to the house of my God. 3,000 talents of gold, of the gold of Ophir, and 7,000 talents of refined silver for overlaying the walls of the house and for all the work to be done by craftsmen, gold for the things of gold and silver for the things of silver. Who then will offer willingly, consecrating himself today to the Lord? Then the leaders of the, then the leaders of fathers' houses made their freewill offerings, as did also the leaders of the tribes, the commanders of thousands and of hundreds, and the officers over the king's work. They gave for the service of the house of God 5,000 talents and 10,000 talents of, in derricks of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze, and 100,000 talents of iron. And whoever had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of the Lord in the care of Jehiel the Gershonite. Then the people re- rejoiced because they had given willingly, for with a whole heart they had offered freely to the Lord. David the king also rejoiced greatly. Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I, and what is what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own we have given you. For we are strangers before you and sojourners, as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow, and there is no abiding. O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. In the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all these things, and now I have seen your people who are present here offering freely and joyously to you. O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts towards you. Grant to Solomon, my son, a whole heart that he may keep your commandments, your testimonies, and your statutes, performing all, and that he may build the palace for which I have made provision. Then David said to all the assembly, Bless the Lord your God. And all the assembly blessed the Lord, the God of their fathers, and bowed their heads and paid homage to the Lord and to the King. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. 
Salvador Dali was a famous artist who was quite the eccentric individual. And he used to be known for whenever he wanted to go out and have a good time, he would go out pretty rarely, but when he did, he would actually gather all of his friends, his closest friends, and they would go out and find the richest or the most expensive restaurant, and they would go and they would just paint the town red. They'd order everything off the menu. They'd order the nicest, most finest bottles of wine. And they'd rack up a tab of two, three, four, five thousand dollars like it was nothing. The way the story goes is that the waiter would come and bring his bill. And whenever he'd see it, he'd get ready to leave. And he'd write the check for the amount that he owed. And then he'd sign it and hand it back to the waiter. But the thing is, the restaurant owner didn't cash the check. And the reason is, is because Salvador Dali had signed the check. And his signature was worth far more than the amount that he wrote the check for. Some things are far more precious than money. And so, what is most precious to you this morning? And at the end of David's life, we see David held one thing as more precious than anything else. And we saw a glimpse of it when he brought the Ark of the Covenant back into the center of God's people. And we know he was passionate about it because he dances in his underwear. But what David is most passionate about is God's presence among his people. And today we'll learn from David that God's presence isn't free. It's actually extremely costly. And in fact, one of the key elements of understanding an experience with God and experiencing his presence is radical, abundant giving. And so today I ask you, If you want to experience the presence of God in your life, how much are you willing to give? Uh Uh-oh. The money sermon. I know exactly what you're thinking. It's really convenient for Ryan to be gone the Sunday that he did in India, right? Oh, I'm going to India, doing some ministry. Give Zach the old money sermon. You know? Actually, uh, Dwayne wanted me to tell all of you that... uh, I'm serious. No, you know it's not. I just said to Wayne, so you know I'm not being serious. But he found out it was about giving, and he said, uh, just make sure you tell everyone not to have cirrhosis of the giver. <laughs> it's just one of the beautiful things that happen throughout the week here at Trinity Arbor Church. Truth is, nobody likes the money sermon because nobody likes to talk about money, and nobody especially likes to listen to somebody else tell you what to do with your money. But the thing is is that Jesus talks about the dangers of money far more than he ever talked about the dangers of lust, adultery, pride, anger, murder. It doesn't even compare to how much he talks about money. He's always saying things like, be careful, watch out, don't be deceived, what do you treasure? And I would guess that if I gave each one of you a piece of paper and a pen and I said, write down the one sin that you're really struggling with, that you would love to experience freedom from this week. I would venture to guess that none of you would write down greed. It's the one sin that nobody thinks they're guilty of. And yet, if Jesus spent more time teaching about money and greed than anything else, then maybe our first assumption about ourselves needs to be that we are greedy. And if we are greedy, it's keeping us from something far more precious And that's very dangerous. 
Now, I know that since we're discussing money and greed today, I'm going to have to try real hard to keep your attention. So I have decided to pull out all the stops and talk to you about The Hobbit. Because I want to talk to you about taking an adventure. I love the beginning of the story where Gandalf shows up in his long gray robes and long white beard. And he says, I am looking for someone to share in an adventure with me. But it is so very difficult to find anyone. And Bilbo says, well, I should think so. In these parts, we are plain, quiet folk, and we have no use for adventures. Nasty, disturbing, uncomfortable things. They make you late for dinner. But then the dwarves invade his home, and something happens to Bilbo, and they start singing. They start singing about the misty mountains. They start singing about enchanted gold and caverns and dungeons and dragons. Not the game. That just came out that way. Sorry. But he starts to hear about something that he's never experienced. Something he's never seen before. He's given a vision of something that he has to experience for himself, but it's going to cost him. He's given a taste of something that he has to see, and he leaves all of his comfort, all of his safety behind, and Bilbo goes on an adventure. And I say all of this today because I don't want you to simply hear me this entire time saying, I just want you to give more. I want you to hear me inviting you on an adventure. Because giving is about joy. Before we get to our passage today, we have to go back to chapter 22 in First Chronicles, many years before where we're at today. David gathers all of his leaders together and he tells them, we have defeated all of our enemies and we have inherited the promised land. But now is not the time to rest. This is just the beginning of what God wants us to experience. We're called to experience something far greater. It's time to build the temple. So what's David talking about? What's he saying? He's telling them and reminding them of God's promise to Abraham that his children would inherit the promised land, but that they would also be a blessing to the nations. David's saying, now that we have the land, we can't stop here. Now it's time to think about the entire world. David's inviting his people on a new adventure, and it's one they've never seen before, but they just have to trust their king. And David invests the rest of his life in preparing the temple and preparing the people for the mission when he's gone. And in our passage today, David's about to die. He's at the end of his life. He spent the final years of his life moving Israel from one era, one era, from the old era to this new era, focused on being a blessing to the nations. But after all these centuries, Israel's heart and culture had to change because Israel was a people of war. It spent centuries fighting each other, centuries fighting every enemy they had. They were people shaped by fighting for their survival. But David understands that to be a blessing to the nations, their culture could no longer be built on war. It had to be built on worship. But the problem is Israel wasn't very good at it. They weren't very good at worship. They weren't very good at worship at all. Because before David came along, the Ark of the Covenant, God's presence, had been sitting on one border of Israel, and the altar for sacrifices was on the other border. There was something wrong with that. And David was the one who wanted to bring it back to a different place, at the center. Because worship was a part of Israel's lives. They believed in God. It's not like they had no idea who Yahweh was. They believed in God. But worship was not at the center of their lives. 
Worship wasn't at the center of their identity. So maybe the people prayed every now and then when things got bad. Maybe they gave a little bit whenever they had some extra extra cash. Maybe they read their Bible once in a blue moon when they needed some encouragement. They only approached God on their terms. And they always kept God at arm's length. They always approached Him on an as-needed basis. David would teach Israel what true worship looks like, and he's going to give them a whole new vision of sacrifice. The way he does it is in today's passage where he gives his final address to the nation of Israel. He gathers his people for the final time. He steps up to the microphone, perhaps dressed in a long gray robe and a white beard, and once they're all gathered, he tells them, in addition to everything I have spent all of these years gathering, I now give my entire personal fortune to the temple. 3,000 talents of gold, 7,000 talents of silver. He goes to all of it. And just to give you a general ballpark idea of David emptying his bank account, just to give you a relative idea of what 3,000 talents of gold is, if you actually just do the math and do it in today's economy, David gives roughly somewhere in the ballpark of $5 billion. I think now's a great time for an offering. So if we could have the ushers come forward. (laughs) Let's close in prayer. Five billion dollars. And this is where we see the difference between the old king and the new king. You see, Saul, God told Saul that when he couldn't have the kingdom anymore and that it would go to David, he spends the rest of his life trying to hold on to it. But on the other hand, we have David. That when God tells David that he can't build the temple, but his son will, David empties his bank account and gives everything that he has and holds on to nothing. Because he believes that God's mission is more precious than anything else. And so you have to ask yourself the question, you spend your money like David, and is it reflective of your desire to experience God's presence? Or is it more like Saul? where you spend all of your money to keep God at arm's length. The people needed to have someone come along and give them a new vision of what devotion truly looked like. And every now and then in our world, somebody comes along and gives us a new vision of something the world's never seen. There's an old story about Steve Jobs that whenever he first started Apple, Apple was in the red. He just started it, and he was just this kid from from uh, San Francisco that had a dream about a computer company. So he'd spent the first few years trying to build it, trying to get investors, trying to get people to come on board with them. So at this point in time, he goes to his friend, and Apple hadn't even made any money yet. It was in the red the whole time. So Steve Jobs goes to his friend that he'd known his entire life, and he says, I want you to come and let me give you a pitch. So his friend comes and listens to him, and Steve sits him down and tells him his entire vision for what he wanted Apple to be. He has this vision of something that the world has never seen. And he tells his friend all that he wants to see Apple perform and do and accomplish. And then he says, I want you to come and join me and help me build it. And his friend said, well, Steve, I appreciate the offer, but I've just received an offer from Coke as a top-level executive. And I have more money, more benefits, 
and more power and position than I've ever had in my entire life. And you want me to give all that up and come work for you for a company that has never, ever made their first dollar yet. And Steve said, yes. And he said, Steve, I appreciate, but I, I'm going to have to decline. And Steve just said, look, man, do you want to make sugar water for the rest of your life? Or do you want to change the world? And his friend thought about it. And he said yes. And he participates in the building of the biggest, most profitable, and most influential company that has ever existed. And David is doing the same thing with his people today. He's giving them a new vision of what it truly means to trust in God's promises. You don't hold anything back. You give Him everything. And when He invites the people to do the same, notice what He asks. He doesn't say, now who's going to give? Now who wants to give? Because He understands it's not just about giving. He asks the question, who today will offer willingly and consecrate Himself? Who will consecrate Himself to the Lord? Now I doubt that you probably... Use consecrate in your daily life. It's not a word you use very often. It's not a part of a vocabulary. So what does it even mean? Consecrate is a word that the Bible uses to describe the ordination of priests for service. To make oneself holy for the presence of God. So what it means is that they're giving up one lifestyle and they're embracing a new lifestyle that is holy and completely devoted to God. David is asking them to consecrate everything they are. To pick up a new life. And what a risky thing he's asking them to do, if you think about it. Let's step back in time. David, who essentially went undefeated his entire life in battle, is about to die. The people trust him. David made him rich. David is the one who gave him all the spoils from all the nations. He's the one who has made the kingdom what it is. They trust him, but he's about to die And even David himself said Solomon is young and inexperienced. So he's asking them to give everything. And how easy would it be for the people to say, I don't know. I don't know about that. That's pretty scary, David. You I trust, but Solomon I don't. What will happen when he dies? What a great time for an enemy. Yeah, we have peace now, but what a great great time for an enemy to come and attack us. And we're left with this king that doesn't even know what he's doing. What a great time, actually, for us to be vulnerable and to be made fools of. Let's do this. Let's actually take all of the money that we have and let's actually build up our walls around our nation. Let's build weapons. Let's build our army. Let's build our infrastructure. But David knows that is the mindset of a warring people, not a worshiping people. Because a warring people have a mindset based on fear that doesn't trust in God. And the truth is, we do it all the time. And we justify it. I do it. I know I do. Think about it this way. Well, I can't really give to God because I'm really hearing a tink under my hood. And it sounds like I'm going to have to take care of that here pretty soon. And so I probably can't give this month. Or college. Well, you know, i got to save up for college. Looks like I can't give for the next 18 years. It's expensive. You know how expensive that is? 
And the thing is, we justify the fact that we don't spend money on God. But the truth is, we'll spend it somewhere else. And the thing is, is that one of the first things to be sacrificed in our budget is giving to God. And I'm guilty of it. I'm trying to buy a house in Rockwall. Look online, you see some really nice houses. You're like, check it out, and you really like it, but it's really expensive. And you're like, well, I guess maybe we could triple our budget, you know, and buy that house. I mean, sweetie, look at uh, look at that yard. Look at, imagine how many women's ministry events you could have back there. <laughs> we'll never be able to give a dime to the Lord, but hey, my backyard, all yours. And we try to justify God's mission to justify our spending. But in the end, it's all a sham. We're all just trying to protect what we want most. And that's not freedom. It's actually a prison. And David asks the people to consecrate themselves and offer themselves willingly because David knows it doesn't matter who your enemies are. It doesn't matter who's sitting on the throne. Yahweh is your king. Yahweh is your king. And he asked them to give up their security and step into a vulnerable place and trust God. He asked them to share their old lifestyle and embrace a new one. And David is giving his people a new vision of the type of devotion and the type of worshiper that will truly change the world. And the people respond in grand fashion and they give everything. And it's more than David gave. If you think about it and step back, they invest their entire economy in ministry. When was the last time? Well, and it says that they experienced tremendous joy. And they threw a party. When was the last time you experienced joy? Complete and utter joy. Well, maybe... Before you can experience, you have to realize that you can't buy it. Because it's not for sale. Shortly after this, David's going to die. Solomon will become king and the people will devote themselves to this new mission and they build the temple. They build the temple and they give everything they have to it. And when it's completed, Solomon is going to pray. And at the end of that prayer, the Spirit of God, His presence is going to descend in the temple. And it says that the priest can't even stand up because his presence was so heavy and it crushed him, crushed them with the weight and majesty and glory of the presence of God. And for a brief moment in time, Israel saw God make them the delight of the world. They saw kings and queens and empires come and pay tribute to Solomon and say, no, you are my king. And they come and they see the glory and majesty and they behold the presence of God and they pay homage to God and to the king. But shortly after that, in no time, everything crumbles. It all falls apart. All of it. And within one generation, the kingdom splits in two. Israel starts to war against each other. They're invaded. And king after king will pursue his own desires. And Israel will fall in love with money and comfort. They'll oppress the poor 
The priests will become so corrupt that when the people come and offer their sacrifices, they actually take the best cut of meat and keep it for themselves. And it gets so bad that at one point in Amos, God says, you know, you can't wait for the Sabbath to be over because you can't wait to start making money again. You do all the right things. You offer sacrifices. You stop working on the Sabbath. But yet you can't wait for it to be over. And all of your sacrifices annoy me because I don't have your heart. You love other things more than me. And if you think about the text we're in today, it's First Chronicles. It was written at least 500 years after David's life. So why are they writing about it? Well, they're writing it during a time when there is no more temple. The first temple's gone, completely wiped off the face of the planet. And they're desperately trying to figure out, as they return from exile, they're desperately trying to look back and say, what went wrong? What went wrong? I know what it's like to live without God's presence, and I don't want to do it anymore. What went wrong? And we do that all the time. We remember this time when God was so near and so precious and His Word was so vibrant to us. Then it goes away. And we look back and we constantly ask that question, how do I get back what I lost? How do I get that back again? David gives us a glimpse of what the kingdom of God was truly meant to be. But his offering wasn't enough to purchase the hearts of future generations. Because they would all turn away. But Yahweh has a promise that he has to keep. He has the promise of sending us a better king. And when that true king comes along, there's going to be a story that happens that's very similar to the one that we have today. The king sets off on a journey, and a rich young man will come up to him and he'll say, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the king will say, Keep God's commandments. And the rich young ruler will respond and he'll say, Great. I've kept all the commandments my entire life. And the Bible says that Jesus loved him. Loved him and said, Okay, well, one thing you lack. Sell everything you have. Give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And then, come. And follow me. But it says the young man went away sad because his possessions were great. But what is Jesus actually saying to him? What does he mean? Why is he responding the way that he does? He's saying, okay, if you've kept all of the law, then this should be easy for you. Let's start from the top with the first commandment. You shall have no other God before me. So how about you sell everything you have and give to the poor simply because I asked you to? How about you sell everything you have and give to the poor and trust that I will provide everything you need rather than everything you want? The young man can't do it because what Jesus is asking for cost him way too much. And whatever he owned in his life was not worth treasure in heaven. But it says Jesus loved this man and asked him to go on an adventure. But it was just too costly for him. And he didn't want to be late for dinner. And you see, money has a way of exposing what our hearts truly love. Because whatever you want for yourself in life, it's great to have money. 
It's really convenient. If you want power, money's great to have. If you want status, social status, it's great to have. If you want rest and relaxation, then it's great to have. If you want to be the best dressed, it's great to have. Money's good to have for, good to have for whatever it is you want for yourself. And the reason is, is there's no one in here that doesn't spend money on what they truly love most. And whatever has captured your heart will automatically always get your money 100% of the time. And the main deception of money is that you can actually have the life you want if you had more of it. And money deceives you into thinking that it can buy you and provide for you what you really need. What really makes you a human person. It can buy love, it can buy character, it can buy compassion. It can buy everything that you need. But the truth is it doesn't. And no matter how much money you have, you will come to some point in your life where you will realize that it doesn't matter how much money you have because your money is no good. That's why nobody says on their deathbed, I wish I would have made more money. I really wish I would have gotten that promotion. It's because some things are far more precious than money. And what you were made for is something so beautiful, so precious, that to think that it could be bought by money makes it so trivial and so trite and worthless. Because anything that can be bought with money will fade. And this is why Jesus talks about there being two types of gifts. In Luke 21, he sees the rich people come and offer their gifts to the Lord. Huge, rich, large sums. And then the widow comes along. She gives two copper coins. She's the equivalent of an entire day's wages. And Jesus said she gave far more because she trusted in God. The rich men gave the big sums, but they gave out of their abundance. And they gave in such a way that it never threatened the lifestyle that they wanted for themselves. It never threatened what they really wanted. So they said, I have no problem if I could give to God as long as it doesn't threaten my ability to have what I really want. But in the economy of the kingdom, the widow gave the exact same amount as David did. She gave enough, and he gave enough, to put themselves in a position to have nothing left other than to trust God. And here's David's, or here's Jesus' point. There's a difference between worldly giving and kingly giving is the way you answer the question, does your lifestyle change based on what you give Jesus? Because there's a difference between Him having your money and Him actually having your heart. The truth is, we do need a better king. And where David gave abundantly, Jesus will give ultimately. When Jesus asked the rich man to become poor, he didn't ask him to do something that he wasn't willing to do himself because he already had. If you look at what he gave up, he was the poorest man to ever live. He is the one who came off of his throne, gave up his crown, gave up all of his riches, honor, glory, and power, and authority, and he came down and became a baby. And he had nothing. Nothing. And Paul describes it this way. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Jesus is the better king, not because he emptied his bank account, but because he emptied himself and withheld nothing from you. Not even his own life. 
And all of the religions will tell you, all of the worldviews will tell you, that just give everything so that you can inherit eternal life. And the reason the gospel is different is it says that you can give everything that you have because you've already received eternal life. And it's our problem that we don't trust that. And that's why giving is about joy, because the gospel says you've already received something far greater. And what motivated Jesus in all of this? Hebrews says it clearly. It says the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. That for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. That it was for joy that he became poor and emptied himself. It was for joy that he didn't just give up his lifestyle, he gave up his entire life. Because there was something far more precious at the end of all of his suffering and everything that he gave up. And it wasn't just eternal life. It was you. He did it so that he could possess all of you. And what lover does not want all of the one they love? And the problem is that we believe that when we give to God, we don't actually get anything in return. We have this idea deep in our hearts. We have this doubt. And it says that we actually don't believe that we flourish when we seek the flourishing of the kingdom of God. And that's the same thing the rich young ruler thought. And he didn't stick around long enough to hear how Jesus would answer that question. Because when he left, Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, there's no one who has left father, mother, brother, sister, houses, or lands that will not receive a hundredfold now. Not eternal life, now. What is he saying? He's saying that in this time, now, whatever you give up for my sake, you'll receive a hundredfold in fathers, mothers, brothers, and sisters, and lands, and houses. And he is saying something unbelievably radical. Something that the world actually has never seen. He's saying that in the kingdom of God, you are given a new family that is characterized by such a radical giving to one another. The, where the motto is that there's nothing anyone would withhold from one another. There's nothing that we would withhold from one another. And that says that what is mine is yours because you have me. And it's no coincidence that in Acts 2, when the Spirit of God comes down and actually fills His temple, His people, that one of the first things to go is the money and the possessions. And we see it in Acts 4. It says, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them, and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. And I would imagine that reading that and hearing that sounds just as radical as David asking the people to give everything. Because we've been asked to do something far greater than David asked his people. And here's the real problem of why greed is so dangerous. Is that that kind of community sounds awful to the person that goes around in life saying, mine, 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 that's mine, that's mine. 
But that's exactly how the world will see the glory of God. And so will you. When we love God in such a way where I give to you the same way that Jesus gave to me. And when we do, I think that there, and I believe that Jesus is telling us that there will be a joy that you will experience that money cannot ever buy. Your life will never be the same. And when the Spirit of God comes into a people, everything else just does not glitter the way it used to. And I think we've witnessed the truth of this all week in the India updates. I think it has proven itself to be true among us. We've seen it in the smiling faces of children on Facebook that have never, ever seen the ocean. We've seen it with four women being baptized in a filthy pond when they know that there's a really good chance they're going to go home and be beaten and kicked out of their homes and kicked out of their villages. Or untouchables knowing that they're loved by Jesus because He gave them a new church building. I'd say to you, behold the glory of God. And the reason is, three years ago, we wanted to do something different. We wanted the vision of our church to be huge. Because that is Jesus' vision. It can't include just simply what's inside these walls and let's make it nice and pretty here. There's nothing wrong with that. It's only wrong when you do it to the exclusion of the rest of the world. And we said, we want to see God's glory. We wanted an adventure. And so we started in global missions. And last year, we wanted to do something that we'd never done before. We said, let's raise $30,000. Not just to send the people that are going to go, but also to raise money to build a water well. Also have the money to build a church. And I'll be honest with you. There were multiple times where we talked about actually lowering that number from 30000 We didn't think we could do it. We didn't think we could do it. But in the end, God brought in $62,000 and blew all of us away. And I told a friend about that, and he said, yeah, that's great. But your tithe probably went down, right? Isn't that usually how it goes? You know, you raise money in one way, and the tithe usually goes down because people are given to that. And I said, no, actually, we actually had the biggest surplus in our church that we've ever had last year. And it's our problem that our faith is so small that we think when we actually give ourselves to what God wants to do among us and actually embrace His vision, we're surprised when He shows up and does anything. We're surprised that He actually cares far more about it than we do and that He actually wants to use us and give us something far better. And so instead of just building a church and a water well, we built a church, a water well. We saw a new school being built in the slums of Kolkata, we saw two girls being completely brought out of a brothel system, brought out of a slum, and given a new life by going to boarding school. God gave us far more than we could possibly ever have thought of. And I can tell you life after life after life that's been changed just out of the result of the last two years. And the thing is, I don't think it's a one-time thing. That's because we believe it's an invitation. It's an invitation to something far bigger than we could possibly imagine for ourselves. We believe that we have been invited and that all of this is just the beginning of a really, really joyful adventure. And that's why this year we swung for the fences and said, how about 80? Why not? Why not see 
what God can do. And I heard the whistles. I heard it. I did it in my heart a little bit too. It was a lot of money. And it still is. But that's why we want to set it at $80,000. You know why? Because when we hit that number, and maybe God brings in double again, which would be crazy. Just as crazy as last year. But when you actually see that come in, what does that do? It raises the water level of faith in this entire church where we say, if God can do that there, what can He do here? What can He do in my life? What what can He do in my marriage? What can He do with my children? He is worthy of everything that I possibly have. And that's why we do it. Because missions restores our imaginations for what God can do. And the gospel is not the belief that the world can be changed. The gospel is the certainty that it will be. And so will you. And I got a text from Ryan Swindle this week while he was in India. And this is what it said. He said, Every night I've woken up crying and full of thanksgiving. The more time I spend around them, the more I grow to hate the evil that surrounds them. It defies all logic that I even say this, but I'd happily, joyfully spend the rest of my days following Smriti down every mud-filled alley of that city. I wish I'd never left. I'd say last year was just the beginning, indeed. And if, the, if Israel experienced the joy they did from the gift of their king, how much more joy do you think is available to you and for us from the gift of Jesus? And today He's knocking on our door and He's given us a new vision of what it means to be rich. And He's inviting us on an adventure. And so you can hear Jesus asking you the questions today. Do you want to make sugar water for the rest of your life? Or do you want to change the world? Let's pray. Father, we are humbled by Your gift to us. It's so hard for us to imagine anything beyond the joy of what the things we buy give us. We often fall fall short of the faith that You ask for. I pray, Father, that You would change us as a church. I pray that we would become a church that invites the brokenness of this city into our, into our community because we believe that a God like You is the one who heals and changes lives. I pray that we would go out to the poor so that there are no poor in our community and in our city. And I pray that the faith that we see displayed by those precious women in India would be given to us. The type of faith that actually says, I will be baptized and I don't care if I'm beaten. I don't care if I lose everything. What I have received is far better. I pray that You would give us that faith and that joy. Father, You've invited us on the only mission and the only adventure 
that doesn't end in pain and sorrow and loss and sadness. Give us the eyes to see it. And I pray that you'd give us a willingness of being late for dinner, knowing that at the end of this journey, we will experience a feast and a party that will never end. I ask all these things in your name. Amen.